There we go. As you know, we've been making our way very purposefully, uh, which is kind of code for slowly, through the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. Last week we heard Jesus use the Old Testament commandment that says, Thou shalt not kill, as an example of how his teachings on the kingdom of God fulfill the ancient laws of God. And that's kind of the theme of the Sermon on the Mount. This is his treatise on kingdom of God. He's been talking about kingdom of God. He's been saying things about kingdom of God. Well, what does that mean? And so he's, he's explaining the kingdom of God to us. He's dealing with this relationship between the, the Old Testament law and, and his proclamation of the kingdom. And he says, let's take, for example, the commandment that says, thou shalt not murder. And we heard him say, in essence, this is kind of how I rephrased it, in relationships, attitude is more significant than action. So you better take swift action to address your attitude. That's what he had to say a week ago. In essence, this is what he meant. Most any fool can get through life without actually killing someone. No offense to anybody here who may have killed someone in the past. I'm just saying that Jesus seems to be saying it's not really too difficult for most of us to get through life without actually committing murder. But the ethic of the kingdom of God raises the bar. It challenges us to recognize that it's the thought that counts. Well, in a way that raises the bar, not lowers the bar. In other words, the attitude of our hearts matter even more than the realities of our actions. And so with that fresh in our minds, we want to keep moving forward. I'm going to keep plagiarizing Jesus, just reading exactly what he said. And we're going to hear him this week use yet another example, yet another famous law from the Old Testament as he further explains how the kingdom of God uh, is supposed to work. So I want you to imagine as you have a handful of times in these past few weeks that you are just with Jesus on that mountainside on that day. The words won't appear on the screen. I want you to just hear them with your ears as I plagiarize Jesus beginning in Matthew chapter 5 verse 27. He says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Ben, is this your favorite passage to preach from? <laughs> I would imagine that if you've ever heard these verses read in a church service before, they were probably followed by a sermon on lust or adultery or maybe some rules about when it's permissible to get a divorce and, and why divorce is usually contrary to God's will. And while I think that understanding God's plan for marriage and his views on those kinds of matters is definitely an important thing, I want to tell you that that is not what I'm going to focus on today. Not because I'm afraid to talk about those things, but I just... I don't think 
that's the reason that Jesus brings this point up at this point in his sermon. And to take his words and to turn them into a discussion of rules, rules about marriage, rules about divorce, rules about remarriage, uh, for me, I think that kind of flies directly in the face of what Jesus is actually trying to do here. So what is the point that Jesus is trying to make? As we've been saying over the past few weeks, I believe it has much to do with the way life in the kingdom of God fulfills the purposes of the law of God. Issues of marriage, divorce, and adultery, these are just the context in which Jesus is presently discussing his points. Now, the people in Jesus's day were very, very familiar with what the Old Testament law said about marriage, adultery, and divorce. Remember, just like last week, we said, thou shalt not murder. It was pretty straightforward. There were some other things in, in the Old Testament that gave it further explanation, but this was not a difficult commandment to understand. It wasn't a difficult commandment to apply. We're in the same place here today. It wasn't a difficult commandment to understand or apply. Everybody understood that God intended marriage to be a sacred, lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. And once that covenant is made, it should not and it could not be broken for any reason. But just like the people of Jesus' day, most of us understand that that's just not the reality of life in a sinful world. The fact is, covenants do get broken. People hurt one another. Marriages fall apart. So when it comes to marriage, how do we apply the law of God when we're living in the kingdom of God? Jesus begins by pointing out that the act of adultery, upon which everybody's been so focused, the act of adultery is never really the starting point. Adultery is the culmination of many smaller sinful issues that precede it. He said in verse 28, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It was about 20 years ago, I was still single at the time, I awoke early one morning before dawn with a really, really intense, sharp pain in my gut. It hurt enough that it was what woke me up, and I am a sound sleeper. So I got up and I walked around a little, I stretched, I, what, what on earth is going on? I went into the bathroom, I got some Pepto, I thought maybe that'll take care of it. Who knows what I had had the night before, but boy did my stomach hurt. The Pepto didn't touch it though, and so for several hours I just kind of tried to gut out the pain, if you'll excuse the pun. By the time the sun rose, it had actually kind of faded and gone away though, inexplicably. And so I showered and got dressed and started the day and went to work. And I was fine. A couple of days later, though, the very same thing happened. I was awakened early in the morning with a really sharp, intense pain in my tummy. I thought, this is not good. So I called my doctor and I made an appointment and he got me in a couple of days later. But you guys know how this goes. On the day I actually went to see my doctor, do you think anything hurt? No, so he poked and prodded me, and the best I could do is describe to him how it used to feel, but everything was fine just then. He gave me a couple of tests, but nothing showed up, and he said, I don't know what to tell you, you know, go and hurt no more. 
And I said, thank you very little. So I went and sure enough, the very next day, it starts hurting again. And this pattern repeated itself where every couple of days I was getting these really, really acute, intense pains in my belly. And they were getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And about a week later, it actually struck in the middle of the day one day. And it was so intense that there was just no way I could get through it. I needed to get to the emergency room. And so I went to the emergency room and I'm telling you, I walked in there praying that they were just gonna pump me full of whatever drugs they had because it hurts so bad. And so I laid down on the gurney and the doctor comes in to examine me and I'm like, please doc, just make it go away. And he's saying, I'm not gonna medicate you. And I said, what? He said, I'm not going to give you anything because I don't want to mask the pain. I said, that's the opposite of why I came here. That's not helpful at all. He said, no, no, no. There's obviously something going on and we need to figure out what it is. I can't give you medication until I know for sure what's going on in there. So he ordered a whole bunch of tests and I'm telling you, I was hurt. And I was writhing back and forth on that, on that gurney, just waiting and waiting and waiting. Fortunately, it didn't take him too long. He comes in a few minutes later and says, congratulations, you have a kidney stone. It's a really, really big haunting kidney stone. Actually, he didn't say that. It was relatively small, but I've told the story so many times that the kidney stone gets bigger and bigger each time I tell the story. But he says, you got a kidney stone, and thanks be unto the Lord, no sooner is he saying it than there's a nurse with a big, big needle full of stuff sticking it right into my IV. And I'm telling you, literally in seconds, I'm going, oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Suddenly, everything felt good. And I thought, this is perfect. Just give me a gallon of whatever was in that needle and send me home, I'm gonna be fine. The doc said, no, I can't do that because, well, there's two reasons why. First of all, what was in that needle was fentanyl, and that's a controlled substance. <laughs> I can't give you that and send you home with it. And he said, secondly, if I did, you'd just go through it all because you'd just be masking your pain. Eventually you'd run out and you'd be right back here because the problem isn't your pain. I said, I beg to differ. He said, the problem isn't your pain. The problem is your kidney stone and we have to address that kidney stone. So he gave me a referral. I had to go see a urologist. They gave me a lithotripsy, which is that really cool thing where they put you to sleep, put you in a bathtub and they zap that bad boy with lasers from Star Wars. And then your kidney stone is gone. And would you believe it? After recovering from that procedure, I never had the pain again. Let's pray and we'll go home. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Jesus is saying that the sin of adultery isn't really the problem. It's a symptom of a deeper disease that started much earlier. And that's the way sin works, isn't it? He's saying this is the bellyache, but it's not the kidney stone. Treating it will only get you so far. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Fine, good. That's a good law. But it's a law that addresses the symptom of a deeper disease. And life in the kingdom of God demands that we address the cause of the disease, not just the symptom. If we only treat the symptoms and never pay attention to the cause, just like me in the emergency room that day, the symptoms will recur and we will never see real change. And that's how we address sin in the kingdom of God. Look at this. In the kingdom, we stop sin at its source. 
We stop it at its source. And Jesus is saying the law was insufficient to do that. It's not that the law was bad. Remember, he said, we're not getting rid of the law. The law was good. But now we are recognizing that the law was insufficient to do what we really needed it to do. The law merely said, don't do the bad deed. Don't do that bad thing. But in the kingdom, we say, hey, let's recognize what makes us want to do the bad thing in the first place. And as Jesus points out, that usually ends up being a much bigger job than just treating the symptoms. In the case that he's looking at, in the case of adultery, Jesus says the root issue is found oftentimes in what we allow ourselves to focus on and fantasize about. And so he gives those great verses, verse 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Pretty drastic measures, right? And thankfully, fortunately, most people that have ever read these verses recognize that Jesus isn't speaking literally. He's using hyperbole to make his point. He's not actually suggesting that if you sin, you should probably mutilate your body. He's just saying that when you identify the cause of your sin, do whatever is necessary to eliminate it. Another story, uh, many, many years ago, Jessica was a baby at the time. Uh, Sue and I noticed a couple of house flies in the house. And then the next day there were a few more. And then the next day there were a few more. And they weren't just your normal everyday house flies. We noticed they were fat and slow and lazy as if they had just gorged upon a Thanksgiving feast. And this went on a couple of days in a row. We had our fly swatters out. We had some bug spray. We were getting ready. It was getting pretty gross. I don't mind telling you. And it wasn't going away. They were just getting more and more and more and more. And we started digging and looking and trying to figure out what was going on. And eventually I discovered that these flies had made their home base uh, my chimney. My chimney, my fireplace. And this is where they were coming from. So we called a chimney sweep. And the chimney sweep got up into that chimney and he came down with a rotten squirrel carcass. Yeah, I thought I'd bless you with that today. (laughs) You know, I remember thinking, man, and I thought the flies were disgusting. (laughs) That rotting squirrel carcass was far more disgusting and it required a much greater commitment to actually get it. And I'm just saying, I think it's like that with sin. Most of the time, it's, it's easy enough to recognize just how yucky sin is. And maybe that's why we don't really want to dig into it. We don't really like to dig into it because it's yucky. And so we feel like a little fly swatter or maybe some bug spray will cover it up and then we can just kind of keep going and ignore it. But maybe we don't realize that somewhere beneath the surface, there's something even yuckier that needs to be addressed. Something that's gonna require an even greater commitment on our part, but it needs to be dealt with. So let's add to our statement. In the kingdom, we stop sin at its source, no matter the cost, no matter the cost. Remember what Jesus said, he's like, look, if if it involves getting rid of something that you really want and thought you need, then get rid of it, no matter the cost. 
we stop sin at its source. We do the difficult work of digging in more deeply. We do the difficult work of plugging our nose and putting on the rubber gloves and removing the rotting squirrel carcasses from our hearts. We eliminate what needs to be eliminated. At least we're supposed to. But folks, it's messy work, isn't it? It's messy work. It's simple enough to avoid actually committing adultery. But it is much messier to deal honestly with a pornography addiction. It's simple enough to avoid actually murdering someone. But it's much messier to deal honestly with our tendency toward anger and unforgiveness. It's, it's simple enough to avoid technically telling a lie, but it's much messier to deal honestly with the things in our lives that we really want to keep hidden. It's simple enough to avoid actually using the Lord's name in vain, but it's much messier to deal honestly with our cavalier attitude toward God and his purposes for our life. It's easy enough to avoid actually literally bowing down before an idol. But it's much messier to deal honestly with the things that we've allowed to get in the way of our worship. These things are messy. Sin is messy. The subtle attitudes that lead to sin are even messier. But ignoring them isn't an option in the kingdom. In the kingdom, Jesus points out an important reason why. I'm reading from verse 32 now. We already heard it. But I remind you that Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, let me give you a a quick 30-second history lesson that I think will be helpful here. In most ancient cultures... Uh, men had the right to essentially dispose of their wives for any reason. If, if they just didn't want to be married anymore, they could put their wife aside and walk away and, and find a new one or find three or four new ones and kind of do whatever they wanted. And in most cases, that would leave the abandoned woman without any means of supporting herself because no other man would want to take a wife who had been used. Uh, in many cases, it would leave the woman without any means of supporting her children. A used-up woman was not likely to find another husband. In the Old Testament, we see a law that places some, some greater restrictions on divorce, but more importantly provided for, and you heard Jesus' reference here, here, a divorce certificate, which would make the woman eligible to remarry. It essentially said, men, if you're going to leave your wives, you have to provide her with the means to find another husband. Now, Clearly, this doesn't stand up to our modern sensibilities about women's rights and and, and equal protection and things like this. But in the context of the world in which that Old Testament law was given, this was a huge progressive step forward for the rights of women and especially those whose husbands had left them. The issue in Jesus's day was that some folks took those Old Testament laws to mean that A man could leave his wife as long as he provided her with the proper paperwork. In other words, and see if this sounds familiar, I can do whatever I want as long as I follow the letter of the law. I can do whatever I want 
as long as I technically follow the letter of the law. Jesus is pointing out that our behavior, and especially our misbehavior, even if we technically followed the letter of the law, oftentimes it impacts people in ways that we cannot immediately see. If I could paraphrase Jesus rather than plagiarize him, I would say he's kind of saying here, yeah, you filled out the right paperwork and you followed the letter of the law, but you put your ex in a position where she's going to have to choose between two bad options. Either live out the rest of her life with no family and no means of supporting herself or enter into a new covenant despite the fact that she never broke the old covenant. And on top of it all, whoever enters into that new covenant with her will also be walking into a bad situation that he didn't create and he's not responsible for either. Now, I recognize that this is not the lens through which we see divorce and remarriage in our culture, but I hope that you can see that in the day in which Jesus is speaking, that's exactly how people would have seen it. And perhaps there were some twice married men in the crowd going, huh, I never thought of it that way. That's not how things should work in God's kingdom. In the kingdom, my sin isn't just about me. There is no victimless crime. Everything I do impacts the lives of people around me. And that's why we need to add to our statement. In the kingdom, we stop sin at its source, no matter the cost, because we see its far-reaching impacts. This has been the nature of sin, the nature of life, really, from the very, very beginning, way back in the garden when Adam and Eve took that fruit. They did it because the serpent said, good things are going to happen to you if you eat this. Good things will happen to you. No consideration whatsoever as to what would happen to others. The serpent said, good things are going to happen to you. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3 and read that story, it says that Adam and Eve looked at the fruit. And what does it say? It says they noticed that it looked pretty tasty. Isn't that interesting? They had never even really given it any thought prior to that moment. But when the serpent said, you know, if you eat this fruit, some good stuff is going to happen. And it was then that they looked at it and they thought, wow, it's in season. It's juicy. It's delicious. I'll bet it tastes pretty good. I'll bet if I do this, good things will happen for me. And it's not going to impact anybody else. And think about this. For Adam and Eve, there wasn't even anybody else to think about at that point. So it made perfect sense to them in the moment as our sins often make perfect sense to us in the moment. But they didn't see the far-reaching impacts of their decision that day to disobey God. They didn't realize that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years later, you and I would still be suffering from the repercussions of that one decision. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying that's what we need to understand in the kingdom. Now, again, I want to emphasize, I don't think Jesus's words were meant to be limited 
to issues of adultery, divorce, and remarriage. Taking the Old Testament law and using it to construct rules about how we, how we do marriage in our society. Uh, replacing it then with some things that Jesus said and using that to construct strict rules about how we do marriage in society. I just don't think that that's what's in view here. I don't think that that's what's important here. I think Jesus is using these things as a very helpful example. His point is that we often don't appreciate how our behavior negatively impacts other people. How it might even put them in a position where they can't possibly make a healthy choice. And Jesus is saying, if your whole goal, if your whole purpose in your faith life is to follow the letter of the law. Do what the law says. You need to know that the law can't take all of these things into account. The law is focused on me alone. The law is about what I do. It's about what I don't do. It's about what I can do. It's about what I should do. But the kingdom that Jesus came to proclaim focuses on us together. It opens our eyes to the ways that our behavior impacts the lives and the spiritual health of people that we might not even know. The mistakes I make can make life awful for people who had nothing to do with them. The things that we do impact one another in ways that we can never even fully see. And Jesus is saying, living in the kingdom requires understanding that and then working backwards. So that it's never about, well, I'm not going to do the thing. It's more about, can I deal honestly with the attitudes in my heart that drove me toward the thing in the first place? Jesus said, live like that. And now you're understanding how things work in the kingdom. But Lord... Lord knows, that's difficult work. That's advanced citizenship. It's going beyond the law. It's going beyond the rules to the reality, the things that they were only there to point toward. Jesus has raised the bar. So people of the kingdom, like we said a week ago, we don't just focus on our actions. We pay attention to our attitudes. And today, we don't try to just eliminate the end result of our sin. No, we make it our mission to stop it at its source. In church, we want to be that people. We want to be that people. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, hear those words. We want to be that people. We want to be that people. We thank you that by the grace of God you have called us to be that people. Because of the mercy and the sacrifice of our Savior Jesus, you have enabled and equipped us to become that people. And so we pray along with our Old Testament forefathers. Certainly and know me, God. See if there be any wicked way within me. See our hearts, Holy Spirit. 
and help us to see them as you do. We are really, really good at trying to follow the letter of the law. It's kind of like you, you made us all to be attorneys. What, what can we understand most precisely? But Lord, give us a heart that is far more tender than thou. Lord, give us hearts that understand the way that our actions impact one another. Lord, help us to remember what the New Testament would tell us later on about being a body. How when one part suffers, the whole body suffers. How when one part hurts, the whole body hurts. How, how everything is, is connected in ways that we physiologically don't even fully understand. But God, we, we experience it every day. Lord, that is the community that we've been called into. And so we pray just in the same way that, that one who has experienced the pain of adultery and unfaithfulness would pray. Lord, we, we pray, guard our eyes and guard our hearts. Teach us to be vigilant about the beginning rather than the end. Teach us to be willing to do whatever it takes. There's so many things, God, that we think, well, you know, I don't really need to go that far because I'm strong enough to deal with this and not have to give up that thing that I enjoy so much. Lord, rebuke us for those foolish thoughts. You have invited us into a kingdom, a kingdom, Lord, where we were designed to live and to flourish and to be with you forever. Help us to be busy about that kingdom work right now. I pray, Lord, that your healing, that your forgiveness, that your grace would be on the hearts of the people that have heard your word today. I pray, Lord, that as we examine ourselves, it would not lead to a point of guilt that cripples, but, Lord, rather to a knowledge of your grace and your mercy and your redemption that brings freedom. I thank you for this today. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.